There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Wharton. This is Cutting Through the Matrix on June the 21st, 2010. Newcomers, I always suggest you go into cuttingthroughthematrix.com website. You'll find hundreds of talks to download that I've given over the years. And while you're there, bookmark the other sites because I do get problems with the main sites once in a while. If you have these other sites bookmarked, you can always get the latest shows and download them for free, hopefully, until they get us off the air altogether. Because, as you know, the censorship is coming. They've passed all their laws, and now it's a matter of reinterpreting the laws to suit themselves and go after individuals that are causing any kind of problems. And that's really the intention of the whole thing in the first place. So bookmark them for future use, and while you're there, go into uh, the items for sale, the books I have for sale. These are different books than you'll buy about so-called conspiracies and so on. You're living. The thing is, you see, the whole world is one big conspiracy. It's called the, 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 the convolutions of reality. It's always presented to you that it really is a conspiracy and how really it's interforced by your training, your education, and the media. It keeps us in a, a sort of land of between fantasy and semi-reality, but never in complete reality. We're managed in a scientific manner. And what else would you do with all the scientific toys they have today and their means of communication? Naturally, it's to do with control. It's always been about control and how the few live off of the many and they live very, very well indeed. So purchase the books. I show you some of the tricks that they use, including the language itself. Uh, it explains the symbolism that is always all around you that they tend to laugh at when you point it out to them. But after all, why do you have obelisks sticking out over, over the place? Why do you have obelisks on all the, the logos of the biggest corporations in the world and pyramids and so on? Uh, there's more to it than meets the eye, obviously. So I try to explain this to you to show you the chronology of uh, the ruling elite. And there's always been a ruling elite and there's always been a dominant minority, as Al Dues Huxley said himself. And from the U.S., if you want to purchase any of these items, you can uh, use a personal check to Canada. You can use an international postal money order. You can use PayPal. Just use the donation button, the appropriate amount for the purchase, and send me a separate email with your name address and order, and I'll get it out to you. Same across the rest of the world. You get the addition of Western Union for wiring money. You can use uh, MoneyGram. And post it as well. Remember, you don't have to simply wire it. It's cheaper to post it. And you can use cash. And so far, uh, they're still accepting cash here, even though the European cash is plummeting. Mind you, so is the dollar. It's it's hyperinflation coming in. Food has actually doubled in, in the last few years, and people don't notice it. And... You can send cash or PayPal again for donations and for purchasing. And please send me donations. That's really what keeps me ticking over. I don't use advertisers. Uh, they don't pay me. I could get them all offered, of course, and keep offering to pay me. But I'd have to bring them on as guests 
and gives you really what are one-hour shows of advertising in, in reality. I prefer to do it this way. The ads on this show are paid by advertisers right to RBN to pay for the airtime, pays for their staff equipment, their bills. So it's up to you to help me keep uh, paying mine. And uh, it's always the same few folk do it over and over again. And that is the way of the world in the me generation. But that's just the way it is. Once in a while you get a new person coming in and you don't have to send an awful lot, a lot of amount of money either for a donation or member. Uh, think of the next time you buy, buy that bag of chips, just send it off in a donation instead. That is the cash, not the chips. And we are really coming through the big changes. We've always known they're coming, but now they're actually legislating them into law. And like, it's so, we're so used to it, it's not even a, a shock to us when they do it because we get trained up until this point to accept it. Back after these messages. Hi folks, this is Alan Watermore cutting through the Matrix. Back in the early 1900s, you'll find lots of books were printed some fictional, some non-fictional, along the theme of world depopulation on behalf of the big ruling club that ran the likes of Britain, mainly the UK. And H.G. Wells is one of the propagandists for them. He wrote a lot of fiction and non-fiction uh, along the, these particular lines of, of elitism and eugenics and the right of a fit to rule the, the lesser. But one of his novels that he wrote was a, it was a semi-novel in a sense. It was really a plan. It was called A Modern Utopia. And he leads the reader through a journey into the future as it would be in once all this uh, had been done, all the different parts of the accomplishments of getting the public to accept it, um, bringing the populations down, and even suggested in the book to, we don't just kill them off, he said, although there was mandatory abortion and so on. He wouldn't just kill them off. He says, we, we sterilize them. It's more humane. And they gradually simply die off all the, 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 the useless type genes, the ones who didn't quite make the grid. And it takes you through a journey across the world in their modern utopia. Now remember that was the early 1900s. And part of the theme then was always, as it is today, oh, there's, if there's, we don't do this, then too many of the wrong people, the wrong people will breed out of existence, all those who have the right to rule, you see, and take all the resources from that few that they really deemed it their world, being the better sorts and all that kind of stuff, the better types. And that was only one book of many, and he belonged to the Fabian Society. He was a spokesman and propagandist for the Fabian Society and the Royal Institute for International Affairs. These organizations still work today heavily in the front of the, the fight for their, for their particular type of utopia. Um, they help back uh, big organizations like Planned Parenthood, which is, again, eugenics. And that's why they put them in all the poor neighborhoods, kill off all those that are the wrong type, as they keep telling us. And we've had many exposés on the same kind of thing. There's so many you could go on all night about some with different quotes from different people, very important people, um, at least they're important as far as, as being up in positions of high power, uh, saying all the, the same things over and over again. And we've had it coming out of the UN ad nauseum since the day it was born. But actually, it came out of the League of Nations 
that was a precursor to the UN before the UN was born, the same thing. They had a a department of population at that time. They actually mean population control. And meanwhile, you had other advocates saying what what utter nonsense, because the world's never had uh, what we call its full capacity in history ever, ever. And... We don't realize, too, that even the worlds in which we live, the systems in this world in which we live, um, are constrained systems. Where we're all really lumped again into cities. Where most folk now live in big, overcrowded cities, where they even passed laws as far back in the 60s. They were not to build any more buildings outwards in the city edges. They were simply to, they could only rebuild on previously existing sites. So knock one down, build up another, and so on. Guaranteeing that they would be overflowing because massive immigration was increased every year right up to the present time in most of these countries to give the impression that we are overcrowded. Well, you certainly, you you could be living in the middle of a brand new planet and cram a few billion people into one cage on a tiny portion of the planet. And yes, that, that cage would be overcrowded. So it's the same sort of analogy. You're stuck into the cities. The, the gates to immigration are open wide. And the reason for this being, they want us all to believe that we're all in it together. See, we're to share the problem of the entire planet. And look around the entire planet. You know, when we used to see starving in Africa and different places, many other organizations came out and said the problem wasn't just the fact that the East and West were playing war games and funding different tribes to fight each other, which was part of it for sure. And no farming gets done during these periods. But the main problem was there weren't enough people living on the land to farm and feed themselves. There were not enough people on those areas. And most of that was from government policy as well. We saw the same thing in Ethiopia a few years ago. We saw the farce of the Live Aid concert. They never told you the rest of the story, uh, that a lot of the money they went to do the airdrops of food were scattering the the stuff in a particular trail along a desert path, and a quarter million of the people died trying to get to this food, which is exactly what the government of Ethiopia wanted because it was an ethnic cleansing move. And lots of the land now is vacant. There are also those up in the, the wildlife fund areas, again, all, all eugenicists at the top of it all, who just don't want ordinary folk living at all, who laud and approve this kind of thing because it's all part of the agenda. They want to return the world to some kind of primal state so that they and their offspring, you know, the superior genes, will have a big, wide, open world to romp about in and play and do their shooting and hunting, as wealthy elites always do. So in the meantime, it's convincing us, you see, all the rest of you who are not up there, partying at the big time, that you must be sterilized. We must bring down the populations. And a war has been raged upon everyone long before any of you out there were born to destroy the very basic fabric of society that gave them cohesion with each other, which gave them the right to stand up together cohesively and fight something. They wanted to basically eliminate them. 
right down to the family unit. The old religions, too, are destroyed because where you believe in them or not doesn't matter. It's the fact that gave you a, a, a sense of what was right and wrong to make a society function without chaos. No incensed, no, no pedophilia, no this, no that, etc., etc. And everyone knew the rules. Didn't have to go to churches to know the rules. Everyone knew the rules. And you dealt with the problems locally. You didn't need police. The locals dealt with any big problems that came along. We didn't have uh, all the different government departments of welfare, uh, children's aid, and various other organizations that now storm homes and come in and do their thing, and off they go. They didn't have us. We didn't have a system a long time ago, not that long ago actually. We didn't have a system where you you had pedophiles walking out the doors in, in courts, and nothing happening to them. Didn't happen. And you didn't have all the raping going on either, and you didn't have all the venereal disease, and you didn't have uh, a malfunctioning society. Because I say, everything that was set in society is a defense mechanism to make that society to, uh, survive. And right down to the family unit. Without the family unit, there's no survival. People cannot bond, and people cannot have offspring, and they certainly can't stay together to have the offspring for very long, because... They've been programmed, you see. And I've given you so many shows and links before to do with this particular type of attack and how it was orchestrated, uh, right down to the, the, the guys like Huxley, Bertrand Russell, and many, many, many more. They're talking about introducing, it wasn't just sex education, to very young children and pre-pubertal children, it was to advocate, basically, or start off an obsession with it in pre-pubertal stages, which become fixations. Do you understand that things that happen to you in childhood, in particular drive areas, very important areas, things that will happen to you become imprinted in your brain forever? And like any drive, any drive can be exploited and become an addiction. Any drive whatsoever, even if it's a need for food, can be exploited by those who know how to do so, and you become an addict, an addict to food, and you become a beast and so on. But the same goes with sex. And they know this, and they discussed it, as I say, as, as early as the 1900s. Actually, before that, H.G. Wells was promoting free love for this very reason, to destroy the family unit in the late 1800s. So, we don't realize that everything that's happening today is the end product of a long, long war, a long battle, because the things that held society together were looked at by those who make wars and looked upon an enemy that was the family unit and society in general with common cultures, and they thought, how do you destroy each part of this? Because that's what makes these people function. That's what makes them stand up and say, no, we're not having it. And they attacked it all, one piece by one piece by one piece. And we now have a society where no one can stand up for themselves. They can't stand up, stand up cohesively to fight anything whatsoever. 
They watch government laws after laws after laws being pulled out and implemented one after another. And yes, they complain about it, but they don't know what to do about it because there's not enough drive and cohesiveness amongst them to simply get so indignant to say, no, we're not having it. And government rolls ahead. It knows it has no opposition today. The other side of it, too, is that they have non-governmental organizations, thousands of them, all funded, I've gone through the history of many of them before, funded uh, under the umbrella of the UN via the big foundations that really run the world. And Professor Quigley went through this technique of the big foundations, the parallel government, the Council on Foreign Relations, and named them all. So did the Anglo-American establishment, plus the other book that exposed what they were up to. It was Foundations, Their Power and Influence. I must, I must read it is, must read. But they've won. It's over. That part's all over. Back with more after these messages. and we're cutting through the matrix. As I've said, most of that plan really has been accomplished because they, they have gone step by step, year after year, introducing more of this into the schools, pre pubertal children. I've read the articles from the, U, the United Nations and UNESCO that's promoting all this stuff. It's now parts of curriculum. You turn on a television set and you wonder what you're looking at when you see people simulating sex on television. They call it dancing with much music. But that's all it is. It's gone down to uh, the bottom. And that's standard fare today. So that maybe two or three generations will sit and watch that together. And I wonder if it makes any one of them feel uncomfortable because it's standard fare today. Quite something. And it's, it's even more so to, to read uh, books by scientists from from a hundred years ago saying they'd bring this in, this very system in, how to use primitivism and bring it into society to destroy the societies that they said would have to be destroyed to rule and dominate them and bring in the scientifically designed society. It's all there. It's normal standard fare today. And the non-governmental organizations, the thousand points of light for the main ones, and the foundations that run the parallel governments are always on the go. As I say, Carol Quigley went through a lot of that, how they set up these fronts, these big foundations, the richest foundations on the planet, incredible wealth, tax-free foundations that had a free hand to decide where their money goes. But what they also did was set up their own NGOs and then fund them for political purposes and to change society from within through pressure, then lobbying governments as well. You cannot fight that kind of system. See, everything in this system runs on money, and those who rule them have the money uh, rule everything. I'm talking about the international bankers, of course. MPs, politicians, um, presidents, prime ministers must go cap in hand to borrow money from the big international bankers. And, of course, there's always demands that go along with it as far as repayments go. That's why Rothschild said, give me char- the charge of the nation's money and I care not who runs it. Because he knew himself that he would run it technically. Because everything runs on the premise of money. The guy with the money makes the rules. Simple. 
There's an article here from the UK column on non-governmental organizations, and this is part two on one world governments. It says abusing the system through NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and CSOs. Everyone knows what a lobbyist is, but do you know what an advisor is in Washington, D.C.? No matter whom we elect, no matter the person or party, if we don't shine the light on who really is writing policy, we're in for a rude awakening. The acronym NGO stands for Non-Governmental Organization. While NGOs go back to the early 1900s, the phrase Non-Governmental Organization came into current use with the United Nations Organization in 1945. It is in Article 71 of Chapter 10 of the United Nations Charter. It established a consultative role for organizations which are neither governments nor member states. There is a conscious effort to replace the term NGO with a more politically correct term, civil society organization or CSO. That's the the term they're they're trying to use at the moment to make you think it's got official backing. It's It's like the Federal Reserve that isn't federal at all. It's to give you that idea that it's part of your government system which technically is, really. So it's civil society organization. There is a major difference. Uh, NGO may apply to any non-profit organization. CSO designation applies only to those non-governmental organizations that are accredited by the United Nations and hold consultative status through the Economic and Social Council. And the link is in here for the Economic and Social Council. I'll put, up, by the way, all these links up on my site at the end of the show, cuttingthroughmitties.com. It says, for-profit uh, profit companies and organizations can also be accredited, but we're only writing off the NGOs here. According to our Global Neighborhood, remember the book, Our Global Neighborhood, that was from the UN uh, as well, the official report of the UN-funded Commission on Global Governance Published in 1995, there were 20,900 international non-governmental organizations worldwide and hundreds of thousands of national non-governmental organizations. As of late 1994, only 980 were officially accredited by the UN's Economic and Social Council. However, these 980 accredited NGOs are affiliated with tens of thousands more NGOs in virtually every nation on earth. By virtue of their affiliation with accredited NGOs, these non-governmental organizations constitute what the UN describes as CSOs. They're bigger than all your governments put together across the planet. Non-UN accredited NGOs are described by globalists as populist organizations, and the globalists feel that these organizations can upset and even destroy the work of decades of their deliberations in a short period of time. That is the potential of the Tea Party grassroots movement currently on the rise in the United States. And here's some background to aid in understanding CSOs. There are two levels of accreditation. Accreditation by ECOSOC, ECOSOC, confers what is called consultative status. Accreditation by subsidiary organization of the ECOSAC authorizes observer status at specific UN conferences or events. And then gives a current list of applications for CSOs with consultative status. It gives a link here, and I'll put it on my website too at the end of the show. Nobody votes for these folks, folks. Back with more after these messages. 
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Cutting through the matrix, I got cut off there, and I've been getting that a lot lately from interference from who knows where, but it's happening more and more frequently. And yes, they do play games with you too. I'm so used to it. Sometimes I'm, I can be talking on the phone, and it's quiet. Certain thing topics that I mention, as soon as I mention them, boom, I get cut off, and that's happening more and more today. So I just got cut off again on air. But I used to have that too, even back in '98 when I was on other shows. They don't like certain topics. However, getting back to the non-governmental organizations that have all this massive funding and massive power run by the Rockefellers and big foundations, it says here, for um, an example of the power of observer status was seen at the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. That was with Maurice Strong. Of more than 8,000, 8,000 non-governmental organizations represented at the NGO Forum, held the week before the Earth Summit, 1,400 NGOs were accredited as observers. NGOs with consultative and observer status are responsible for the following. Development of the Global Agenda 21, that's Agenda 21, for the United Nations. Enactment of the policies at the international level. Converting international policy into national laws and regulations. Implementing the new policies, laws, and regulations on the ground. They must go into, see, one, they actually create treaties, then they go around to every government, and they just automatically sign on these treaties. All bypass the general public, there's no voting for these NGOs, they're just there, you see. Big lobbying NGOs. Then it gives you a bit of history. It says, the modern NGO story begins with the creation of the United Nations. One month after the UN Charter went into force, Julian Huxley signed the document that created the United Nations Education, Scientific and Cultural Organization, the well-known UNESCO. He also became the first CEO of it. I've read articles from his books on the UNESCO where he said uh, everything I've mentioned earlier about introducing sex into schools on an ever-increasing basis until basically the children would be having so many partners before they were old enough to know what they were doing that they'd never bond to any individual thereafter. That was part of the plan. In fact, what he said was, he says, we shall eventually get them to accept sterilization so they can have as much promiscuity as they wish, the only, the only rule being that they do not have any outcome from the, the meetings, you might say. Two years later, the same Julian Huxley was instrumental in creating the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, or IUCN. The IUCN consolidated the work of the British Fauna and Flora Preservation Society with other conservation groups that worked throughout the British Empire and aligned its work with the activities of UNESCO. To increase funding for its work, the IUCN created another more public organization called the World Wildlife Fund, or WWF, in 1961. It was headed by Prince Philip, who's just lately again came out with another of the same statements, we've got to depopulate the planet. During the 1960s, the IUCN lobbied the UN General Assembly to create a new status for NGOs. 
So Resolution 1296, adopted in 1968 to give grants and consultative status to the NGOs. Who do they consult with? They consult with governments. They dictate to governments. The IUCN is accredited with six UN organizations. In 1982, the IUCN and World Wildlife Fund worked together to create still another NGO called the World Resources Institute. Russell Train, then president of the WWF USA, amassed $25 million in grants to create the World Resources Institute, or WRI. He selected Gustav Speth, co-founder of the Natural Resources Defense Council, as its first president. This triumvirate, consisting of IUCN, WWF, and WRI, is the driving force behind the rise of the NGO influence at the UN and around the world. It's a parallel government, you see. The IUCN's current membership includes 92 international non-governmental organizations, 753 national NGOs, 29 affiliates, 80 state agencies, 93 government agencies with state members, and 23 government agencies without state members. The U.S. State Department contributes more than $1 million per year to this NGO. So, yep, your government money is also funding these private non-governmental organizations that are also funded by the big tax-free foundations. It's just astonishing. And the money they're raking in is astonishing. It says here, President Clinton issued Executive Order 12986, which grants this NGO certain diplomatic privileges and immunities. WWF funding in the USA is interesting. WWF reported 95 income in the USA to be around uh, $138,874,116 and assets at $62,558,896. In recent years, the WWF's take has increased. In 2003, it was over $370 million. In 2004, it was over $468 million. In 2005, it was almost $5 million, $500 million. 2006, $549 $1,827 million. In 2007, it was $693,193,000, or 66, $663, almost $664 million. That totals uh, $2,551,783,000. The WF's take in 2008 was not quite as good. They switched their accounting in euros in place of the dollar and took in 447 million 251,000 that's roughly 584 million dollars their total income since 2003 is just over 3.1 billion dollars which does not include 2009's count so it's got a list of how much they rake in these these uh, little tin can waving, you know, the door, that's what you think of, you see. You think of one of these NGOs as guys who go around collecting money in tin cans in the doors. No. These guys are run by the multi-trillionaires at the top who run the foundations. But they also want money from you too. So they can pass laws upon you, even though you don't elect them. And that's how they bypass democracy. And they've been doing that in every area with these NGOs for an awful, awful long time. Now, 
I've said from the beginning that the internet would only last a certain amount of time before it, it will keep going, of course, with the format with the mainstream being on it. Lots of pornography to make sure most will keep going it because the people apparently folk really love the stuff. And um, but there'll be no dissenting voices allowed on the internet. And this is from Fox News, January the 13th, 2010, when uh, Napolitano said, Internet monitoring is needed to fight homegrown terrorism. And then it was republished June 18th, 2010. Uh, fighting homegrown terrorism by monitoring Internet communications is a civil liberties trade-off that the U.S. government must make uh, to, to beef up the national security the nation's homeland security chief said Friday. So in other words, you see, you can't be safe and free at the same time, so therefore you could lose your freedom to be safe. That's what you see, it's a trade-off. A civil liberties, that's your freedoms, folks, trade-off, so that national security can go ahead and make you safe. As terrorists increasingly recruit U.S. citizens, the government needs to constantly balance America's civil rights and privacy with the need to keep people safe, said Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano. But finding that balance has become more complex as homegrown terrorists have used the Internet to to reach out to extremists abroad for inspiring and training. Uh, Those contacts have spurred a recent rash of U.S.-based terror plots and incidents, etc., etc., and it also came under, remember, the, the, the law that Obama put through to, to stop homegrown extremism and uh, terrorism. It also meant, of course, anyone talking about any alternative version of what was happening than the governments would also be put down as terrorists. That included folk on the Internet or talk shows, obviously. It says the First Amendment protects radical opinions, but we need the legal tools to do things like monitor the recruitment of terrorists via the Internet. Now, does that mean anyone talking out and saying the government is full of BS, you know, bothersome stuff, with its, with its views and opinions on things? Anyone speaking against that is actually a terrorist? Does that, is, does that what that mean? Of course it can be meant to mean that. It's so broad it can be meant to mean anything you want it to mean at the top. So Napolitano's comment suggests an earlier effort by the Obama administration to reach out to its more liberal, democratic constituencies to assuage fears that terrorist worries will lead to the erosion of civil rights. The administration has faced a number of civil liberties and privacy challenges in recent months as it's tried to increase airport security by adding full-body scanners or track suspect terrorists traveling into the United States from other countries. Her speech is a sign of the maturing of the administration on this issue. Or the maturing, that's what it is. Said Stuart Baker, former Undersecretary for Policy with the Department of Homeland Security. They now appreciate the risks and trade-offs, which must more clearly uh, than when they first arrived. And to their credit, they've adjusted their perceptions or preconceptions. So uh, this will be expanded and expanded all through the Internet, as we well know. Uh, they've already put laws through an internet to do with copyrights, etc. Actually, when you read it, it's a lot more than just copyrights. It's also to include this kind of stuff here about content. What you're saying, what you're passing on to other people. Content. And most things are happening through executive orders, basically. There's one that came out from the White House um, executive order. 
establishing the National Prevention, Health Promotion and Public Health Council. That's National Health Service for folk who don't understand it. And that was June the 10th, 2010. By the authority vested in me as president of the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, including Section 4001 of the Patient, the Patent Protection and Affordable Care Act, Public Law 111-148, is hereby ordered as follows. So, Section 1 is establishment, is established within the Department of Health and Human Services, the National Prevention, Health Promotion and Public Health Council. That's one. Two, membership, the Surgeon General shall serve as the Chair of the Council, which will be compro- composed of the Secretary of Agriculture. This is for your health care, folks. It brings in food and everything, farming, everything. The Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of Labor, of Health and Human Services, of Transportation, Education, uh, Homeland Security, Administration of the Environmental Protection Agency, Chair of the Federal Trade Commission, Director of National Drug Control Policy, uh, the Assistant to the President and Director of the Domestic Policy Council, the Assistant Secretary of the Interior for Indian Affairs, the Chairman of the Corporation for National and Community Services, and the Head of any other Executive Department or Agency that the Chair may from time to time determine is appropriate. This is your National Health Service thing, covering everything. And I'll put this up on my site too at the end of the night for you to peruse. And meanwhile, we slang, we slang the leaders, the ones that are the front men. I always said that presidents and prime ministers, um, apart from being little psychopathic actors, really aren't that, that important. It's only important we believe they're really the, the front, they're, they're really the bosses. Their job is to take the tomatoes, we throw tomatoes, mental ones, allegorical tomatoes at them when we're unhappy and we throw laurel leaves at them and petals of roses when we're astonished at their generosity, which doesn't happen very often. But the guys behind them know what they're up to, what their job is, and the guys who are appointed, there's more people who have been appointed to Obama's administration than any previous administration. You have all those greenies, all the ex-communists up there, the ones who are eugenicists, who want the world run on a scientific basis, uh, on board with the John Holdrens and all these characters. What's democratic about that? Everything's been changed without folk even accepting the fact everything has been changed. Your whole system of government has been changed. And they don't know it. But Obama being a good little psychopath like every other front man, has having a good time to himself. And why not while you're king of the hill for a little while, king for a day, as he used to say. Obama wastes millions of uh, taxpayer dollars on personal entertainment. This is June the 7th, 2010. It said, uh, the same hypocrite who says our energy costs must necessarily skyrocket to fund his political ambition is giving Marie Antoinette a run for her money when it comes to spending national treasure on personal luxuries. While much of the country is struggling to pay their bills, the President and First Lady are partying like rock royalty. The collection of talent has made the pilgrimage to the White House to entertain Obama and friends is nothing less than amazing. Bob Dylan, Stevie Wonder, Tony Bennett, Paul Simon, Mark Antony, Herbie Hancock, Martina McBride, uh, Queen Latifah, the Foo Fighters, Faith Hill, and recently Foot and Mouth, <laughs> Paul McCartney, to name a few. Who actually is Sir Paul McCartney, by the way. 
This has, which it likes to be called now, apparently. This has the makings to be the greatest ongoing concert series ever to be seen on the earth, just to explain one man, all paid for by the American taxpayer. How much does this world-class entertainment cost? Assuming the artists themselves forgo appearance fees, I highly doubt Paul Simon would perform with just a karaoke machine as backup. Professor equipment, professional equipment needs to be brought in, sound engineer stages, uh, lights, etc. Even small-scale performances by these artists can be very expensive. Add booze, food security, security invitations, social secretaries, uh, wait staff, and hangers-on to the tab, and the price for one of these events could easily top $75,000. be a lot more than that. <laughs> That's cheap. With over 27 concerts hosted thus far, the total cost to taxpayers is in the millions of dollars. That's more like it. The executive branch uh, does not provide detailed information regarding entertainment expenses. However, it's been estimated that Obama spent at least $10 million on drunken White House parties in 2009 alone. So that's not bad when uh, there's more folk going on food stamps than ever before as they bring the economy down and celebrate the top that have been successful because they're all part of bringing the economy down for the new world order, you see. That's the real world, isn't it? Now, James Lovelock, you've all heard of, I'm sure, the nutcase who goes around his, his whole life parroting uh, the Gaia concept. He was a guy who came up with Gaia. Uh, that the world really is one big goddess of interacting forces, all interconnected, and man's a scourge on the planet. Back with more on his sayings after these messages. I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. Talking about James Lovelock, who made his name about the Gaia theory and how everything is interconnected, the old Gnostic principle, and that humans are destroying the planet. And we're going through a cycle now of change. Uh, he was all into the cooling. Now the warming scenario has started, so it's all warming. And he he's changed his tune on some things. He believes that nuclear energy is a good alternative to to really power densely populated places like Britain has become and uh, other countries too. But uh, at the same time, he still believes that uh, catastrophes will happen. Some of these guys live on catastrophes that never happen, but they're they're so disappointed, they become bitter as they become older too. But it doesn't stop them spouting on like a Jeremiah that uh, coming calamity has got to come. Uh, The sea levels haven't risen at all, you see and uh, stuff like that, and they're disappointed. So now it's too many people in global warming. But he does give you little clues. He just say, he's always talked about the adaptive theory where the elite should always, you know, those who are well-suited to survive, just like the disaster movies they turn out now, uh, should save themselves and prepare uh, by building places up near the North Pole, which would be uh, more habit- uh, habitable, really, uh, for a long period to come. Uh, stuff like that. But he's also said this, uh, and because he mixes with all the elite to the big wigs who use them very, very well uh, as a front man uh, for their agendas, he says, we need a more authoritative world. This is from the theguardian.company.uk. We need a more authoritative world. We become a sort of cheeky, egalitarian world where everyone can have their say. He doesn't really like that. It's been cheeky, you see. It's all very well, but there are certain circumstances 
a war is a typical example where you can't do that. You've got to have a few people with authority who you trust and who are running it, and they should be very accountable too, of course. That, but he, he bewails that, that you can't have this kind of dictatorial society. Says, but it can't happen in a modern democracy. This is one of the problems. Now, what's the alternative to democracy? Well, there isn't one. But even the best democracies agree that when a major war approaches, democracy must be put on hold for the time being. I have a feeling that climate change may be an issue as severe as a war. It may be necessary to put democracy on hold for a while. In other words, our betters, our betters should simply rule us like masters and slaves and uh, get their agenda through, you see. But, you see, the elite have always prepared for every possible disaster to make sure they themselves and the list that they have of the, the better people with the right stuff will survive. They already have their underground systems protected against earthquakes, completely waterproof and everything else and stacked to the gills to last them a thousand years if need be all over the place but I wonder if all the Lovelock's been invited into one of them or not you see or is even he not high enough for that his old stock his rather old stock you see and they do want ones who will breed new little aristocracies but there you go, yeah, democracy should be put in hold. Now, that's been rampaged across all the world right now through all the NGOs. We've already got it with the farce of the terror, a war on terror, which is a war of terror. They use this to get everything through, including the, the environmental issues, and take all your rights away from you. But there's so much I could go on about, but there's no time. This hour rushes in. Uh, from Hamish, myself, in Ontario, Canada. It's good night to me, your God, or your God's goal with you.